This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. If I tweet something very stupid and someone unfollows me, they have that right. I didn't get canceled. My salary is didn't disappear. Like J.K. Rowling, your books are still selling as we speak. Uh, you're probably signing more movie deals. Uh, like I, like what material harm has come to you other than people being like, you know, the things you're saying are very harmful to trans people. Uh, and then you going, I'm being canceled. Like what? Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate, and normally I say I'm an American teacher abroad, but actually I'm an American teacher right now in my in-law's basement. Uh, I'll talk about why I'm in my in-laws' basements and uh, have some like personal news to deliver, I think, at the close of the show. Uh, but for today, I'm excited to have a conversation. I have uh, the one, the only, the products of Crosscuts, uh, Mo in studio. So, Mo, how are you today? Good. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Mo, it's funny. You actually have come from the most popular job on this podcast. Uh, the first host, sorry, the first guest on the show was Annika Anand when she was the engagement editor at the Seattle Times uh, for the Ed Lab. And then we had Dahlia on when she occupied the spot. And now you're an alumni of that spot. Like that is apparently the launching point for like really dope people in the Puget Sound area doing media. Yeah, that's uh, I was always, you know, I was struck by how many people, you know, that I, I admire have just worked on that team, on the education lab team there. Um, and uh, yeah, I still, you know, stay in close contact with Dahlia. She uh, she's actually going to be my roommate in the fall. So, um, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm excited to, you know, I, I haven't been in that job for about a year now, but uh, they still do great work. And, uh, you know, we're always I'm always advocating for more education coverage at my current job. So your current job is at Crosscut. And for folks who don't know, uh, what is Crosscut? So Crosscut is uh, an independent uh, news site uh, covering the Northwest, mostly Washington, but with some uh, reach into Oregon uh, and even Canada. Um, and that's because they are part of KCTS 9, which is our local PBS station. Um, so that they kind of merged together a few years ago. Uh, Crosscut was, you know, an independent, like basically a startup news site before that. Um, but it's definitely grown in the last few years, uh, including my team. You know, these are jobs, uh, the audience team that were all formulated in the last year or so. Um, yeah, so we, we are trying new things, doing all sorts of, uh, you know, there's been nothing, no shortage of, of things to cover during the pandemic and uh, during the protests. And uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very interesting time to work in news uh, in the Northwest. I was going to ask, like, what is the national media organization you think the work at Crosscut is most similar to? Hmm, most similar to. That's interesting. You know, that's uh, it's funny. That's something they asked at my interview is like, who do you try to emulate? What publications do you like take um, inspiration from? Um, I, I'm big on reading. Uh, I like The Atlantic. Uh, I know there's people there who are more New Yorker people. Um, I've recently started reading more of The, the New Republic. Um, so I don't know, you know, we, we talk about being more of the, the long form, not the, because, you know, we don't cover breaking news like the Seattle Times. Um, it's usually like the day two story, um, at least not as much breaking news. Um, we don't really cover crime. You know, it's, it, it is a much smaller operation. So um, a, a small operation taking on a lot um, is, is actually, you know, there's a lot I could compare it to because that is becoming more and more uh, common in media right now because you know as newspapers are shrinking there's a lot of these startup news sites um but uh, another one that's super similar to us is the the texas tribune um mm -hmm. they cover exclusively politics in texas um they are you know they're small independent they do a, a little festival to exchange ideas uh every year kind of like we do the crosscut fest uh which was obviously put on hold this year um but you know we try to take other inspiration from from public media in this conversation, I want to talk in the first half about like media objectivity and like what that means. Why does it matter? Does it matter? Who does it harm? And in the second half of the conversation, I want to talk about like this controversy over cancel culture, like that raggedy ass letter in Harper's Magazine signed by Katie Herzog and 
Matt Inglesias. I want you to know I'm rolling my eyes very hard right now, those two names in particular. Uh, but what's your like formal journalistic training that you have? Yeah, so I uh, I went to the University of Washington. I, I grew up in Washington um, and, you know, wanted to go uh, to a state school. Uh, and uh, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do going into school. Um, and I found journalism uh, after a stint trying to do graphic design. Um, <laughs> super competitive at UW. I did not know that. Um, but yeah, so I found journalism just because, you know, a friend encouraged me to do at least one thing I liked uh, towards uh, finding a major or finding something I wanted to do. So I joined the student paper. Um, started writing there for the daily um, and eventually editing. Uh, and then I, you know, became a journalism major. So I've, I had training at UW. Um, and then before my first full-time job at the Seattle Times, I was, I did a breaking news internship at the Chicago Tribune. Um, and that was, that was only three months, but that was like some of the quickest learning, most hands-on I've had to do. It was like first week there in a city I'd never been to. And they were like, go to this shooting scene. Um, it was a lot of so breaking news. It was a lot of uh, crime and, and, uh, um, you know, I mean, there was a lot more to it, you know, and got training in like covering courts and things like that, but uh, just a, a lot of learning in a fast paced environment. Um, and then since then, I've had uh, almost exclusively digital jobs, you know, I haven't uh, been a reporter since then. Um, I worked at the Seattle Times uh, in two roles, like you said, the education lab role uh, before that as a homepage uh, producer, uh, helping write push alerts, you know, share stories, uh, get them out in front of the audience. Um, and uh, yeah, my most recent role is also is to help uh, a public, a smaller publication like Crosca in this audience role uh, grow and reach new uh, new readers. Um, yeah, so I've done you know I've I've done editing, I've done writing, I've done reporting, and uh, done a lot of digital stuff now. So I'm just trying to you know it's this being this early in my career where I think I can try a bunch of different stuff because you know in newsrooms I've worked in a lot of the the problems I see is that people can't communicate because they don't really know what other people do. So I, I think it's a good thing to know what all the jobs in, uh, in your workplace are. So I'm not a journalist, but I've interviewed a ton of them. And uh, I took a J class in community college for what it's worth. And this idea of objectivity is something that I'm really, really curious about your thoughts on. So I guess let's just start with this. Can you define the term like media objectivity uh, and like how it was taught to you and how you try to practice it and think about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've ever like defined it out loud to myself, um, but traditionally, what what it has meant, um, you know, it goes hand in hand with uh, fairness, which is something you know that that is, you know, to be objectively fair to someone, like you know, when you're writing about them, you have to go get their go get their take, like you have to interview them, um, give them the right to respond, and uh, uh, and you have to source and fact check, and and you know, uh, the aspects of fairness is basically letting uh, as many people as you can give inputs to give yourself uh, a holistic story. But uh, I think traditionally it has also, it has been warped kind of because, you know, it was defined by so long by the industry being dominated by white men, um, often, you know, uh, wealthy white men with access to be able to, to write for a living or like who have a family member who put them into the industry or something like that. Um, I think today, when when a, a lot of people who are pro objectivity mention it, they talk about uh, like what I call both sidesism. You know, where you know we we think everything has a, a 50-50 point of view, which is like not true. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, that has led a lot of you know journalistic endeavors to deviate from just facts because if you're just following the facts, you will know like something like climate change is not a fifty-fifty debate. Uh, it's more like 97, 98% of scientists. Um, but, you know, it's it's always presented as like two people arguing on a screen, um, at least for cable news. Um, and I, I do think, you know, I, I don't, I appreciate getting news to people in, in lots of different formats, but I do think, you know, um, constant 24-7 cable news has, has kind of furthered this idea of or, or the, these wrong ideas of what objectivity might mean you know like you have to give people equal airtime you have to um basically pretend like everything is is a uh, has two sides when in reality it could have multiple it had like it's it's a very complex issue that has more than two two points of view uh or it could have just one you know like racism should not be up for debate <laughs> systemic racism is like a fact in this country like it's been well documented um and uh, you know pretending it's it's not or it is 
is very silly. Like, uh, you know, the, in the last four years, we've seen a, a reluctance by media to call things racist and, and have seen some progress on that. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of dragging of the feet when it comes to that for some sort of notion of objectivity or perceived objectivity. Um, but it's interesting to me because, you know, uh, a lot of publications that get accused of being super left-leaning, you know, they, they will try to, you know, they'll get like a, a conservative columnist or something like that. Uh, but I, I have rarely seen, like, can you name, give me an example of, of conservative media that has hired like a liberal commentator? Like, right. it doesn't matter to everyone, but some people, you know, like for keeping up the sake of, of some sort of like, oh, there's two sides and we represent both, will go out of their way to do that when, you know, it's not always necessary. Yeah, there's no liberal equivalent of David Brooks at the National Review, and there never will be. Absolutely not. Well, so if I'm keeping it buck, which I always try to do, this conversation is kind of like spurred on by three different media events that I saw happen over a short period of time. Uh, the first one is an exchange that I had with Colleen O'Brien. So Colleen is a host on Cairo Radio. I have the utmost respect for Colleen as a journalist. Uh, and Colleen was tweeting about the protest in Snohomish. Uh, for, for the record, I have an older brother who lives in Snohomish, and he's been involved with some of the Black Lives Matter protests. And so counter-protesters counter showed up at the protests with rifles uh, to prevent looting that wasn't going to happen. And uh, Colleen, when she tweeted about it, called it armed security. And like for me, I, I, took a, I took issue with that because that's one of those like you're trying to sound objective, but what you're doing is euphemizing something that's really vigilante justice. Uh, the second incident that kind of brought this conversation to bear for me was the Tom Cotton op-ed, where essentially Tom Cotton was giving column space in the New York Times, a paper of record, to kind of lay out uh, his take about how the president of the United States should send the U.S. military to kill protesters, uh, ostensibly, basically, right, because we're sending the military in, somebody's going to die. Uh, and then the third point is actually a tweet from you when you were talking about DACA. And so I wonder, can you... Walk me through your family history and why immigration matters are really important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my family immigrated here, my family of six, uh, at that time five, because my mother was pregnant. My family came here in 2001 from Jordan in the Middle East. Um, we came to Washington State because my dad had gone to college here previously and still had friends who were able to help us get set up. Um, and my older sister needed some surgeries. Um, and there's really great hospitals in Portland just across the way. Um, so we immigrated to Vancouver, Washington. Um, but you know, me and my siblings, all four of us were born in four different places. So my youngest sister was born in Vancouver, like a month after we immigrated. Um, she was actually born on September 10th, 2001. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, uh, we came here and because all four of us were born in different places, our citizenship status is, is varied. Um, so uh, I was born in Los Angeles uh, when my mother was visiting uh, her family. She had she has family, uh, and then my youngest sister was born here. But two of my sisters were not born here, um, so they are they are dreamers, um, and so that that's why that issue you know hits home for me is because you know like it's it's like one family right, but like you're, you're telling me like two people in a family can be at risk of being deported to a country like they didn't really grow up in, um, while two aren't for for reasons outside of the like those kids control um that's why that's something that hits home to me um and i i think you know my view of of journalists being objective you know the, the whole point of of that is uh so people can trust your reporting right and trust your work but i don't like i think all of that has not led to a lot of trust it was just weird why we doubled down on it because mm -hmm. You know, that hasn't stopped anyone in the last four years from decrying fake news when they disagree with something. Like, has that really built trust? And that's because I, I, nobody is stupid enough to think you're not a human without biases, right? All of us have life experiences that inform how we perceive things. Um, so my, my, my view is to, is to push for transparency. Um, and that's something, you know, I, I push for in, in audience work because we, we, we act basically as liaisons between readers and, and the newsroom. So we have a chance to foster that transparency. Um, that's why, you know, in both newsrooms I've, I've worked in, or in, in my last two newsrooms, the Seattle Times and Crosscut, you know, I've pushed for uh, this like inside the Times or inside Crosscut type of, type of stories that basically communicate how we make decisions and who we are. 
to, to invite readers in because, you know, with so many, so many publications, you know, competing with you for, for readers, you know, you got to give people a reason to trust you or to, to distinguish yourself. Um, and I, you know, I think we don't give people credit enough for, you know, being able to, uh, distinguish, you know, between, between outlets doing things like that and, and outlets not, um, I've found, you know, even while moderating comments, you know, a, a fake news comment is very quickly backtracked once you start engaging with the person. I mean, like, like why, like I am a human behind this screen and, um, yeah, sorry, that, that was very long winded, but that is all to say, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certain issues that hit home for journalists and being transparent about that and where we're coming from as we report on them, uh, can only help. I think. I want to unpack a couple of things here. So I, I, th- I think I heard you say that you think objectivity is important because it builds trust. But I also heard you say that like both sides-ism is like dilatory to informing the public. How have so many journalists gotten their head around the concept of, of objectivity, meaning both sides-ism? Because in particular, like I can think of a few local journalists who like uh, they will present a show where they say, oh, let's just name names. So like, I like Brandy Cruz. I've been interviewed by a few times. Uh, I think she's a, a good person who wants to tell good stories and inform the public. But her show called The Divide right there says, oh, there's two sides to the issue. And essentially what, what she does and what journalists, and not just, not just Aaron Brandy out, like what journalists all over the country do is they present issues that are 60-40, 70-30, 80-20 fifty fifty, and give like equal airtime. And my feeling is, is that in doing so, they often legitimize extreme opinions and legitimize fringe actors. And so I'm wondering, one, am I crazy? Is that not what's happening? And two, if that is happening, why the F are journalists doing it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, honestly, is, is inextricable from the, the business failings of journalism, right? Like we, we are struggling because, um, you know, when the internet happened, we're too slow to adapt. And then when we did, all the money basically goes to Google and Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I work in audience and I work in social media and I, I still think, you know, it was a, a grave error. And I don't know if like we, like journalism at large had much of an option, but to basically outsource so much of our, our getting eyeballs to platforms like Facebook, right? Because then it's, it, that's, we're at the, the whims of that platform and how it chooses to, to moderate things or, um, we just have less control over it once it's out there. Um, but be, because, you know, because there's this desire to, to make money, which a lot of it right now is, is subscription models, you know, you want people to subscribe to you to give you their money. Uh, it, it forces you to want to bring in as many people as possible who can spend money on that. And so you try to both sides everything. So, you know, this, this, I, this 50-50 notion of objectivity then gets you both sides, both sides, air quotes, uh, of an audience. Um, so that, I mean, that's, that's just one part of it is that, you know, I think people, you know, journalists and, and companies, especially, and like when we talk about, uh, uh, local, local TV news, um, like you were mentioning, um, you can't, I think, talk about that without talking about how uh, it has been like consolidated into like, it, like a few enormous parent companies owning all of these same channels. Sure. Um, and at that top, there's like, there, there are agendas. Um, I mean, the like, practices of Sinclair, uh, who, that own Sinclair is a company that owns, uh, news stations all across the U S like they have like a documented agenda. They have things that they make all, all of their news stations basically read on air. Like they've done that before. Uh, that's the stuff that, you know, if you're an average person looking for news, uh, that you can trust, like you, especially if you're not like, like I have the privilege of being able to sit on my computer all day for work and parse through information and, and develop media literacy. But someone like, even like my parents who are working full time and like are tired at the end of the day and they just need something they can trust. Like they don't have the time to, to parse through like, Oh, here's like the parent company of this. And here's like the, the their agenda and things like that. Um, it, it creates this just like messy media environment, I think. Um, and, and in the, in the midst of all that, like, I don't think until now we've really started like interrogating as a whole, what this, this notion of objectivity and trying to bring in as many readers as possible has, has done to the industry. Um, and when I say we, that's not technically fair because journalists of color, like myself inside, inside newsrooms have been pushing 
for more critically thinking about these issues for four years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have happened sooner if more of them, more of them were hired into newsrooms that weren't super homogenous and actually represented the communities they cover. Um, I think I've gotten a bit far away from your, or no, you're fine. Question. You're fine. You're fine. Well, and, and, and I think one of the things is, is that like, Reporters engage in both sidesism in order to defend themselves from like calls of bias. Yeah, and like he, I guess here's my take on media bias, and you tell me if I'm an asshole on this. Uh, people who work in media are largely college-educated, middle-class people who live in urban areas, and so they bring the biases of a college-educated liberal person who lives in an urban area to the work they do. Conversely, the media organizations are owned and operated by wealthy fat cats who want low taxes and uh, support really crappy policies from the Trump administration, and they bring those biases in. And so it's a classic like alienated labor or Marxist kind of thing where like you have workers who are opposed and have a different stance than capital, but the workers are the one who get called bias and nobody talks about the bias at the top. Am I, am I smoking? That, that, no, that's pretty. I think that's pretty succinct. It's uh, especially the idea that just like the average the average person interacting with news is obviously going to interrogate the thing directly in front of them, which is the reporting and the reporter uh, and their biases. But they're not going to think about the the overall like the company's agenda or something like that. Um, it's you know there's there's biases at every level, and the ones that are most public facing obviously get the most public criticism. Uh, but you know I think it's it's up to us who work in media to to you know, develop more nuance in the conversation and be like, there's biases coming from here, biases coming from here. And and that's why, you know, advocating for transparency is, is super important, at least to me. Um, and I don't, you know, there's some people who I, I don't think, you know, there's not much that will convince them to trust a news operation and when will, uh, especially a lot of traditional news operations. Um, and that, you know, that's something that we have to deal with and when we have to work through uh, a lot of times, yes, as companies, but as individuals, um, like when I was reporting in Chicago, you know, I would show up to these to these communities that for decades, this publication probably ignored, you know, but I'm there just to cover crime just because so, someone got shot in this in this South End uh, neighborhood that is n- not majority white, you know, uh, they had no reason to trust me. And I was new to the city, you know, and my badge said Chicago Tribune. And so I had to know that like both. Bef- that that was like I had to accept, you know. That was beyond me, right? I there's like decades of distrust here that is not my fault, but I'm still wearing the badge, right? And I have to I have to work through that. And so, um, most often to build trust with people, you know, and this is often you know because I was reporting on sensitive situations like crime and violence, you know, I try to approach as a human being first, you know, and 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 you know develop a connection with that person and talk to them and let them know that like you're here because you care to tell their story holistically. Right. Um, and you're going to advocate for them when it comes time to edit or to frame a story in a certain way. Um, yeah. I mean, if that's the thing, like if, I think working through and building, you know, being transparent about your biases and where you come from uh, and also, you know, trying to, to build trust and those two go hand in hand, the transparency and the trust um, is going to get you, is, is going to be more important than, than talking about these, these artificial notions, I think, of, of objectivity in, in the long run. Because, yeah, like I said, it hasn't done anything to prevent people from, from distrusting news. Uh, it might have done the opposite, honestly. I mean, the, the distrust is everywhere. Well, and when you frame objectivity about being transparent with your biases uh, and transparent with like what you do and don't know, I think that's a much stronger definition and explanation than the way objectivity currently gets discussed. Like I hear objectivity discussed oftentimes in media as like neutrality and it's not about neutrality. And I've actually caught myself misusing the term and saying media neutrality. Like I don't think the working people who go on to become journalists go into journalism to remain neutral on issues of law and justice. Right. But they have an obligation to inform the people and be transparent about like what they understand about situations, what they understand about worldviews. Like now I'm doing the long answer. Let me let me spin it this way instead. Um, If I put you in J school tomorrow and you were teaching the next crop of journalists. Well, and let's be real that like a lot of journalists are not coming through J school, but let's say they are. Uh, You're teaching that crop of journalists about uh, about how to handle themselves in this like era of uh, 
political polarization, uh, declining revenues for media outlets, fake news and everything. Like, what would your advice be to the next generation of people who are following you in the business? I mean, so this this idea has gained prominence uh, just in the last, uh, even the last few months. Um, but uh, there's a reporter who used to work at the Washington Post, uh, Wesley Lowry. He's won Pulitzers. Love Wesley. Yeah. So he he's advocated for what what uh, he's he's called moral clarity, right? Mm. Um, and that's nothing short of just that's that's not obliterating the the ideals of fairness in journalism in fact that's it's his idea is to uplift them and anyone making arguments that uh approaching stories and journalism with moral clarity is is uh detrimental to journalism is is silly and hasn't interrogated it enough because we want the same thing which is fairness and fairness doesn't mean giving everything a 50-50 side um, or a 50-50 framing, right? Um, it's it's about following facts. It's about uh, listening to the communities you're covering um, and, and fu- fully getting to know them when you're telling a story. Um, and it's about not shuffling, like dragging your feet on on so many things that have just been baked into journalism, right? Like like we don't think about how the exclusion of, of people of color from this field has shaped it enough, mm. I think. Um, even like, something we, we, that I see publications everywhere struggling with is, is the passive voice. Um, and, and readers, you know, maybe the, the, the passive voice in some ways, you know, is, is used to like shield, shield, you know, storytellers because, you know, it doesn't put, uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't put like the, the onus or the, the, the blame on any spe- specific party. Right. Um, but a, a lot of things we used to report like have come from agencies that not every community trusts, right? Like the, the term officer involved shooting, right? That's, that's just come from, from like official, like police accounts of things. Um, journalism didn't have to adopt that. Um, right. And it does not have to continue using it. Um, and I think rec- like this, this recent national awakening, uh, has, you know, has already forced some changes, right? Like a lot of publications uh, in the last two months have have finally, long overdue, said they will not just publish mugshot galleries devoid of context. Um, they're going to start capitalizing black, right? As as black populations have been covering have asked for for a long time, right? Um, so, I, I to go back to like what advice I would give to to young to young journalists entering the field is like do do not do not buy into the old idea of objectivity that was created by someone who doesn't look like you, right? Like always, always default to, to facts first um, because that is, we are in, in an industry of facts and that's, that's what matters. And if the facts, if everything, you know, like words have definitions and you would think journalists would know that and appreciate that more than anyone. But if someone is doing something racist, it is okay to call that racist. Right. And not racially tinged or something that doesn't even racially charged sense. statements. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I would encourage people to just ask themselves, like, who are you doing that for? Right? Like, it's like, uh, sure, that might like alienate some people who are like, oh, I don't think that's racist, but like, that's the thing. Like, I, you you need to engage with your audience and, and and you know explain why you do the things you do or why you call the things you do. Uh, you know, like, wh- why do you operate the the way you do when when telling stories? And because a lot of people they would they don't understand them. Like the, uh, you can see that in the replies, like on Facebook, on Twitter to stories. It's like, like, why are you, why are you saying officer involved or like why are you using the passive voice? Like, there's a really egregious example the other day. I don't remember what it was, but it basically it said a bullet entered a man's home. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Yeah, well, the, and the <laughs> other one that got me was the one in Seattle where they're like, "Woman struck by a car while protesting." The woman was not struck by a car. A man ran yeah. a woman over. And when you insert this passive voice, you're shielding people from the accountability of their work. Much like you said, when you use it, racially charged statements, racially tinged statements, racialized languages—they're all euphemisms for referring to racism. And like the president of the United States and the party he represents, essentially are engaging in habitual racism uh, in public, in private, and through systems. And we've better serve we called it out and it's a disservice to ourselves and to journalism because our one of our main goals is not just fairness but accuracy right yeah and it 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 just like it it doesn't lend itself to accuracy to to not call things what they are right and and to 
I don't know, it kind of just like blurs the truth sometimes to use the passive voice or, or to use terms given to you by agencies, because like, aren't you like, you're supposed to be independent, right? You're like, uh, ostensibly you're holding, uh, you know, powerful institutions accountable, but when you're using the language they've developed for you, are you really doing that? Or are you shielding them? Um, you're, you're shielding them for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I think just moving forward with, with, uh, you know, a commitment to fairness and accuracy and to presenting arguments uh, in the right proportion, which is not always 50-50, like climate change is not a 50-50 argument. Um, like that, that is, that it can only make us better as a field and can only rebuild trust. And yeah, there are people that won't like that because they disagree, but that already exists, right? Facts. Um, well, and, and can I say really fast, one of the elements that can, and we'll take a break afterwards, one of the elements that contributes, I think, to media distrust and like the liberal media and media elite smears is frankly like misplaced class envy. So folks look at media as being liberal elites because like they're college educated folks. But like, I know what beginning reporters make and beginning reporters make less than beginning teachers. So you get some small business owner guy who runs a landscaping business or like runs I don't know, insert name of working class blue collar business where like you employ a bunch of immigrant labor and you're making twice as much as a reporter does, but then calling them an elite. That always drives me crazy. Like folks who are, who control, who literally control means of production, calling 20 something broke kids who are trying to just inform the public elite is some of the wackiest whack, whack, whack stuff possible. It definitely is. And I, I it's like this, I don't know. I feel like sometimes it, it I, I, I think of it hand in hand with like, uh, what I see as like an, a uniquely American attitude towards science and experts yeah. and like, we just like, you know, why do these experts exist if not like to believe them on something like a pandemic, you know, or like um, that, like dismissing someone as elite, like only in America have I ever heard the, the word overeducated. That's such a ridiculous concept to me that you can ever be that. Like, yes, I mean, sometimes you can have your nose so buried deep into reading that you're not, like, looking up and, and being aware of the world. Yes, you, you can be out of touch. You can't be overeducated. Um, and, yeah, I, like, especially, like, I, I acknowledge that now, you know, I, I, I am doing much better than, than I was, than my family was uh, when I was growing up, right? Like, I grew up uh, very poor. My, my parents, my, my one parent who, who could work for the longest time, uh, making minimum wage, making slightly above minimum wage at a certain point. Um, I went to a state school off, off need grants, off some loans. Um, and I'm, I've, I've mostly stayed here trying to cover like a city that I, I, that I have, you know, became an adult in and that I really appreciate and want to see uh, be a better city for all. And, and journalism has been that conduit for me is to like, this is, these are where my, where my skill set lies. And this is how I can, you know, be a be a, a good citizen in the place I live in. Um, so t I don't know. Calling people like that, you know, elitists is is really funny to me. And I, you know, I don't know what the basis of that is, other than I don't know uh, big words like. Uh, well, there's so some jackass right now in Lake Stevens in a three thousand square foot house, or in Bonnie Lake in a three thousand square foot house right now. You're sitting here in your apartment, which like I can see it isn't that big, right? And like <laughs> they're calling you an elite, and like I just I just can't with that. Like I like to the sea, to to, to the sea with class envy, and to the sea in particular with mis misplaced class envy from people who actually have privilege towards people that don't. Like they can they can all take a walk, and like I think that's where I want to put a break in because I want to come back and talk about this damn cancel culture letter because like this is an example of actual elites uh, being wretched and raggedy and misplacing their their power as well. So we'll be back. <laughs> Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. Tacoma and Pierce County's restaurant scene just keeps getting better and better. You can eat at a great local establishment every day of the month and never have to repeat yourself. So if you love to dine local, then here's my challenge to you. Put your money where your mouth is and bank locally too, with Pierce County's local choice, Tapco Credit Union. And yes, that is the corniest segue I've ever said. But it's nevertheless true you can also choose to keep your money local. TAPCO is committed to serving Tacoma and Pierce County, just like Channel 253. TAPCO offers the services and programs you need. Home loans, auto loans, checking and savings, online and mobile banking, 
all with lower fees and better rates than the big guys. Plus, you get the knowledge that you are keeping your money right here with a credit union that supports the community you live in. To learn more about our local choice for money, visit tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. So before we return to the interview, I just want to take a moment, uh, dear listener, and kind of walk you through things happening in my life uh, that may uh, shape what happens with the show and with with me right now. Uh, In our last episode, when I was talking to Tawana, I mentioned that my father was recovered from back surgery. Uh, On... The day after Father's Day, my father uh, had a surgical uh, spinal fusing uh, at St. Joseph Hospital. And when he was post-operation, his recovery wasn't going well. And essentially, because my mother is older uh, as well, my mom's 79, uh, and wasn't able to care for him in the condition he was, he was sent to a rehabilitation center located on South Hill. When he checked into that rehab center, uh, he was... uh, healthy. He was tested for the coronavirus coming out of St. Joe's. Uh, in his time at the rehab center, he contracted the coronavirus. Uh, and so I was in contact with my dad on July 2nd. And so Hope and I, basically, when we found out, immediately went and got tested and then went back into quarantine, which is why I'm recording this from my in-law's house in Shelton, because we're quarantining basically in their self-enclosed apartment. Uh, my test came back negative, uh, and so did Hope's. And so we're okay, and we're still projected to leave uh, and fly back to Abu Dhabi on the 9th. Sorry, on the 9th, on the 29th. But as far as my dad's state, uh, it's not good. He's in a medically induced coma uh, at uh, Good Sam Hospital, and he uh, is intubated. The reason why I want to talk about this on the show for a minute is, is that... In my following of the news from back home, I read and heard about how people of color are being disproportionately impacted by this virus. Uh, Essentially, every Black person who has been on this show, with I think two exceptions, has somebody close in their family who is suffering right now or was diagnosed with the virus. Uh, Corbett Mosley, who was a guest on the show, uh, way back in the beginning, I believe his father uh, is uh, struggled with the virus for a period of time. I'm not sure of his current status. I, I, I say all this to say because the system in the United States produces racialized outcomes when it comes to everything. I think there's a perception that folks have that like black people are somehow genetically more susceptible to the virus. And what the real issue is, is that black workers often work in positions that are called essential jobs. And so like they have just more exposure and there's documented systemic medical racism where black patients get less quality treatment. Uh, Como News published a story that the rehabilitation center, uh, which is co-located with a nursing home where my father is being treated, now I believe has 21 positive cases out of 33 people. And also the virus is like running amok among the staff. And so... I say all this to say that, like, I don't think that folks who listen to this show uh, buy into this coronavirus is fake and hoax nonsense. But I just want to say, like, if you need, if you're one of those, like, j- people that needs to hear it, I almost called you jackass, people that, like, needs to hear it, like, from somebody and, like, real-life experience, then, like, let me be your real-life experience. Uh, the virus is real, and my father is right now fighting for his life. The least you can do in order to prevent further spread for the virus is to wear a mask and wash your hands. Uh, I'm going to be departing back to UAE on the 29th, and uh, I'm going to be basically going to a country that's not post-virus per se, but that has... uh, So UAE has a population of 10 million people. Uh, There's under 400 virus deaths over the entire country. And so like 10 million people is equivalent of Washington State or New York City. And so by engaging in responsible pro-social behavior, by wearing masks, we're able to actually halt the spread of the virus. I'm going to implore you, for my sake, for my father's sake, for your own sake, uh, to have tough conversations with people you care about. Uh, You may not want to challenge people for not wearing masks, and you may not feel like that's your role. But if you doing that halts the spread of the virus and slows down its spread and slows down people getting infected, then it's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm going to ask you, dear listener, to step out of your comfort zone and and to be an advocate for public health because the people... Listen... This entire show is grounding the idea of like local politics and local action. If not you, then who?
So, uh, so that, that's where my head is right now. We're going to get back to the interview with Mo and talk about cancel culture. In this half of the conversation, I want to talk about uh, what some people are calling a plague of cancel culture, what I'm going to call a plague of public accountability for political elites and opinion elites. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to kind of talk through this Harper's letter with you. But before I do, uh, let me kind of lay out my worldview. And again, tell me if I'm stupid. If I am a columnist at a major newspaper like David Brooks, the person who did what I was doing 50 years ago, if they wrote a trash column, uh, people would sit down with a piece of paper and they would write a letter to the editor. And then they would put that letter to the editor in the mail and that mail would go to the newspaper. And then an editor would review that and only publish the ones that they chose to, that they thought were good and that were like literate and well-written. And then that's the way that journalists got pushed back. Moving forward a little bit, uh, we enter into an era in which journalists get uh, emailed takes and so a, a reader is like David Brooks or uh, Rouse do that. This column sucks. I'm mad at you. Signed, reader. Come a little further in the future, we get comment sections. And journalists are very open about the fact that they rightfully don't read the comment section, so they're never getting the feedback. But now when David Brooks writes a raggedy column, he gets ratioed into oblivion on Twitter. And now he believes this is a mob mentality and chilling to free speech when really he's being confronted with how much the public thinks he sucks. That is how I'm seeing the council culture debate. Tell me where I'm wrong. You know, I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think, uh, I think we can all do with being a little less online. Uh, and why are we in journalism if not, you know, to exchange ideas and stories and then learn from them and get better, right? If you write something and people don't like it, you will hear about it. And like you just outlined, you will hear about it in any way people have, right? People still email. Um, it's funny because the, a lot of these people who like that, like New York Times columnists who are complaining uh, about about the stuff they get on Twitter, which is people like, uh, mostly attacking their ideas often, right? They're like, this is, this is terrible. Like, you know, like the choice to publish a, a, a senator advocating for the military to, to, you know, take over cities and attack protesters and things like that. Um, if you want to look at the emails like that me or some other journalists of color receive, if you want to see actual attacks on people, right? right. like, like this, this, the stuff they take issue with, like Brett Stevens, like, with any any reply you know is so minor compared to like i've been uh when i worked on the education lab team we wrote a piece about you know my, my colleagues had been working on this big project about teacher diversity in washington state um and i was trying to do you know some uh, audience engagement along with it so i was sharing experiences that readers uh shared with us uh both teachers and students um with how not having you know teachers uh or that reflect them or or uh co-workers in the case of teachers um, has affected them. Uh, I didn't say anything about who I was. I was sharing other people's stories and I got email, like an email telling me like to go back to my death cult in the middle East and like shit like that. When like, I've been here since like five years old. Uh, I was born in Los Angeles. Like, I don't know what you want from me. Um, like that kind of shit is actually detrimental to like, to like our mental well being. like, but having your ideas interrogated, uh, and, just your ideas interrogated and not like your material, like your, your material, like uh, gains from your job affected in any way. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we have somehow deemed that cancel culture instead of just accountability. Um, or as someone on Twitter said, holding an L, um, <laughs> yes. you have to be accountable to, to the things you say. Uh, like that's the whole point of journalism, right? That's why your contact information's at the bottom of every article, right? Like even if Twitter didn't exist, you're still going to hear about it. Um, well, and, and my frustration is also that like, I, I feel like, well, there's two things happening at the same time. Well, actually there's a bunch of things happening, but two I want to focus on, uh, one, the people who like decry the death of free speech seem to only want to use free speech to say, uh, raggedy things about trans people, raggedy things about gay people, and that black people are somehow genetically inferior or more criminally, uh, inclined. And I'm speaking right now about Andrew Sullivan. Right. And so like, these people really only talk about free speech being denied when it's their speech in one way at a marginalized group. 
The other issue is, is like you're talking about like the hate that you receive as a journalist of color. Uh, like as a, as a, I'll just say this, being a notable Negro on the internet is exhausting, right? And that same hate and vitriol comes my way as well. But these same folks are dead silent about police abuses. They're dead silent about what's happening in Portland and is happening in other cities. And so like this construction of free speech they create is really about preserving their own speech and their own perceived privilege and being able to insulate themselves from feedback when people think they suck. And I, 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 it's, it's so transparent and obvious to me that like, I, I, I want to just, I want to find each person that signed that letter in Harbors and slap them as an act of speech back. And one thing I do want to do, cause somebody's going, Nate, you're being a hypocrite and now talking about elites. I want to be clear here. If you are on the op-ed page of the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, if you are J.K. Rowling, the greatest selling author of the century, if you are Noam Chomsky, noted linguist who has been cited by more people than any other author ever, if you're John McWhorter, you actually are an elite. And so what you have is people like yourself who are working journalists, living in small apartments, getting called elites. And what you have is actual elites complaining about being silenced. And like... That happening at the same time to me is absolutely maddening and stupefying. So I, 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 go ahead, please. No, like who ha, who has genuinely silenced J.K. Rowling? Right? Facts. Like, like, like nobody. Like your platform is still as big as ever. Preach. If, if anyone unfollowed you or doesn't want to listen to you anymore, that's because of the things you said. Which that's how it works anywhere. If I tweet something very stupid and someone unfollows me, they have that right. I didn't get canceled. My salary is didn't disappear. Like J.K. Rowling, your books are still selling as we speak. Uh, you're probably signing more movie deals. Uh, like I, like what material harm has come to you other than people being like, you know, the things you're saying are very harmful to trans people, uh, and then you going, I'm being canceled. Like what? Well, and, and the idea that I'm being canceled as I write about being canceled in a national publication to me is that like the, just the cognitive dissonance, like you're complaining about speech being limited in the pages of Harper's magazine, one of the oldest and most prestigious publications in the United States. Uh, in the same day, Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan both played victim and they resigned from their publications because of like the, the chilling atmosphere. Like, out of here like i just i just can't even with this like there the, the idea that i don't see a plague of cancel culture i see large numbers of people on social media wanting to hold people accountable for their actions now there's there's one example where i'm gonna we're like okay if you when i say there's no cancel culture i always get the same example it's the data data analysis guy who like published the article or tweeted the article about violent protests driving down voter turnout he lost his job yep but you know what? Like he's gonna be fine. The the thing is, is nobody who is powerful is actually losing anything except for their comfort. Exactly. I mean, these these people who you know are ostensibly elites, like J.K. Rowling, right? Who has made more money than than anyone in her than everybody replying to a tweet of hers. All of their income combined will never touch hers. <laughs> um, they will never be as comfortable as she is in life. Uh, for everyone like her, there is Harper's. There is a publication willing to, mm -hmm. to, to publish uh, her, her qualms. For everyone else, there's Twitter. Um, and this is something that I've seen even in journalism as like a, 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 almost like a generational thing. But like, you know, people wishing, oh, I wish like people wouldn't be so like aggressive on Twitter or, you know, outspoken or something like that. Like don't want to damage your credibility. But like that is the platform. Like, it's not like we chose this. That's just the platform that public discourse happens on, right? Like, the president is on there. World leader, like, world politics happens on there now. Um, so that's, I mean, that's just the platform that we have now. So if I, it's given us, you know, more access. But, like, uh, that that is, you know, you have to know that being an elite who's going to join Twitter, right? Like, you're J.K. Rowling and you make an account. You have to, you're like, oh, look ostensibly like what, what why are you making that account to engage with fans right uh so you can't complain when that engagement becomes negative and like you know like when they have meaningful feedback like yes if people are responding to you being uh misogynist being being like terrible harassing you that is that is legitimate grievance like you would want that platform to get better and, and block out that hate like no one should be subject to that 
Um, but having your ideas attacked and people telling you you're being anti-trans and like you are dismissing the humanity of an entire like portion of of the population like that is something you that's just accountability and i think like i said there, there's nothing like calling it cancel culture is silly because it's not affecting you in any other way other than like your feelings are hurt that people don't agree with you which is what public discourse is for right like it's for people agreeing and disagreeing um but you don't get to disagree on someone's humanity like that's not um uh, i forget what his name is there's a, a representative in congress who tweeted this week uh, saying that the basketball player James Harden was canceled because people were upset that he wore a Blue Lives Matter mask uh, at the NBA bubble in Orlando, right? Like the Rockets, like took the, his team took photos of it. They posted it on social media. Um, James Harden was not canceled. He's still making a million dollars, like uh, millions and millions of dollars every year, sure. right? He's still a superstar. He has endorsement deals and sneakers from Adidas. Nothing happened except people being like, yo, James Harden, like, why are you doing this? Like people who, uh, you know, have have qualms with the police right now in the, in this environment. Right. Which is a lot of people. This is a, a broad sentiment right now that has only gained more popularity um, as as the Black Lives Matter movement has. Um, they were genuinely wondering, like, James, like, why are you especially with the NBA talking a lot about uh, about these issues? Like, why are you wearing that mask? Like, at least explain it. And it turns out uh, James Harden didn't know what it was. And as I suspected, it was just a mask big enough to cover his enormous beard <laughs> so he could not catch the coronavirus. Um, he apologized. He didn't know. He said he didn't know that's what the, the sim- symbolism on it was. Um, he was not canceled. But you have a, a congressman like going on Twitter to defend a basketball player. Like if that's not elitism, like what, what is like, and nothing happened to, to, to this person and anyone else who, who is at his stature, like, I don't know. Like, and, and a lot of this just makes me think of a few years ago, the height of the, of the me too movement, how people were like, like, when does this end? And they were like upset for people like Louis CK or Charlie Rose. And it's like, well, if there's more people out there like them, why does it have to end? Like, why are you so upset for these people? Because you miss some terrible comedy. Like I I don't get like why people being held accountable is so upsetting to others. Yeah. If you're out there shouting white power and you lose your job, like it's your fault. You lose your job. Honestly, like just high key, low key, all the keys. Uh, One other element of this that I find just to be just enraging personally is the people who are chirping the loudest about cancel culture belong on the political right in the United States and the political right cancels people for a living. Like, so I'm older than you. Back in 2003, we canceled the entire nation of France because they didn't sign on to the Iraq war and they started calling French fries freedom fries. Uh, The Dixie Chicks got canceled for not supporting George Bush's war. Uh, Conservatives tried to boycott, tried to organize boycotts of Colin Kaepernick and Nike because he wouldn't stand for the anthem. Uh, There's movements right now to get Bubba Wallace's sponsors to withdraw from him. These are all examples of cancellation that the political right has pushed. And now the political right says any like left accountability is chilling on free speech. And like the hypocrisy of it is just so stupefying and so frustrating. Like, I want to shake people. I remember them smashing like their Keurig machines. Uh, the frustrating thing is, I don't even remember what that was about. What did right. Keurig do? <laughs> everything. I mean, there's just so much of this happening at all times, and um, you know, a, a lot of uh, you know people have written recently about you know it's not really the 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 online left or whoever that is online too much. It is it is the right in a lot of ways. Um, the people that are most vocal about cancel culture are spending all their time on Twitter. Like half of Barry Weiss's problems would disappear if she just logged off. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't want to be held accountable, then publish your story in the pages of the New York Times where you get paid an enormous salary to publish your ideas and then don't engage because you don't have to. Right. Like there's people like me who moderate comments on your stories when they get posted to Facebook. Right. Uh, but when you get pushback, like don't shut down and be like, I'm being like harass- I'm being targeted. Like, no, your ideas are being called out for being bad. Uh, And if you like care to be a good journalist, you'll interrogate why and like get better. And there's journalists who do this, um, who do engage with readers and who do come out better for it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I just don't think I think it's such a such an online thing. Like, honestly, if you if you spend all your time on Twitter, obviously, you're going to get exposed to things you don't like. And especially if you're sharing your takes on there, like it, it can be from the most mild things to getting called out for your food opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, at this upper echelon of, of exchanging ideas um, for people who like work at enormous publications, like you're dealing with opinions about more significant things. So. Yeah, when you publish a senator who, I mean, he's a United States senator, like who has, uh, or a congressman, who they have their own platforms. They really don't need you to elevate their their stuff. When you publish someone, you know, advocating to, to send in the troops uh, against, you know, nonviolent protesters, uh, yeah, you're going to get some pushback. Um, and, you're, and, you know, the frustrating thing, and people have written about this, um, about people like Barry Weiss, is they won't name who they're upset about. Which is their black coworkers, honestly. Right, their coworkers of color, and especially their black coworkers, um, because uh, I remember reading, you know, how the the New York Times staff, you know, uh, that responded uh, to the Tom Cotton piece being published, they specifically, you know, the wording was publishing this endangers the lives of black of your black coworkers at the New York Times because it does um, historically we know that, and. Uh, yeah, there's, it's just like a, I don't know, that is some, like refusing to engage fully with that just helps you, I don't know, prop up this like victim narrative that like you're the one being targeted when people are have legitimate qualms that like threaten their lives with the things you are saying and doing. Yeah. So I, listen, I, I'm, if you're David Brooks and by the way, we met once, David, how you doing? And you're listening to this. Uh, if you're Barry Weiss, if you are uh, somebody who has a column at the New York Times, New York Magazine, Los Angeles Times, a national publication, uh, if you're Matthew Iglesias, co-founder of Slate Magazine, sorry, of, uh, of Vox Media, which is laying off workers while you collect still fat, fat paychecks, uh, hear these words very carefully. You're not a victim. You have your platform. You aren't a victim. Shut the hell up. And... Oh, I'm so sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, I'm so, I'm just say, like, like, And if you do lose your platform, like the recent like wave of media reckonings, like when uh, there's documented examples of being uh, racist or sexist, like the editor in chief of Bon Appetit, uh, if you are moved to remove your platform, you should probably ask yourself why. Like if like that is uh, uh, his material gains were affected, yep. they were affected by his actions, uh, and sometimes that's warranted. Yeah, the, the editor of the New York Times published a Tom Cotton op-ed and then lost his job after admitting he hadn't read the piece. Well, he's not a victim. Like, you're the... Let me stop. Let me stop. All right. We're going to go to listener questions because some fire questions came in for you. Uh, the first one is from the aforementioned uh, Dahlia. Uh, please tell us about your idea to open a shawarma place and why, oh, why you want to call it what you want to call it. Uh, so, yeah, uh, my old coworker Dahlia, who's a friend of mine now, um, she she lives with my girlfriend um, and she will be my roommate at some point. And so she gets to hear all my stupid ideas out loud. Um, and I said I would like to open a, a, a bacon shawarma place called Haram Guys. Um, and half of my business ideas are uh, just based off puns or things like that. Like I wanted to open uh, a basketball themed uh, Euro shop called Eurostep, but with a G-Y-R-O. Um, I'm not going to do this because I'm a journalist because I don't have business acumen. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, she gets to hear things like that. Um, I'm sorry. uh, I hadn't heard the Eurostep one. That's even better. (laughs) Yeah. See that one, if I could get some funding, that actually sounds like fun. And, you know, the idea is to have, you know, basketball players get to, you know, come in and make sandwiches and name it after them. And, uh, one day maybe if journalism doesn't work out. (laughs) Oh man. All right. So the next question comes in from Mayo, like Iowa and, so I think and I perceive that you're somebody like I am who does some extra work outside of their work in advocacy. And so the question is, like, where do you draw the line uh, when it comes to being an advocate in addition to your work and like sitting on committees and doing all that extra work? And then where do you say, like, that's not my job? Yeah. Um, you know, I think in, in that uh, in one of my my recent threads about about all of this that's been happening um, is, you know, is that I've I used to, you know, uh, even a few years ago when I entered journalism, when I was more idealistic and I was like, yeah, there's there's a lot of power here to change how these places operate. Um, I used to see journalists of color that I look, looked up to, like not join things like the diversity committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always like, oh, I wonder why, like, you know, like their perspective is valuable. Um, just three years into this, this field full time, I completely get it. 
um, because sometimes it feels like change is so impossible inside these institutions that you would rather protect your peace and protect your unpaid hours because you don't get paid extra to go serve on like your, your company's race and equity committee. Um, I used to be more involved um, uh, at the Seattle Times. You know, I was on that committee. Um, at, at Crosscut, I have taken a step back and I'm not as involved. Um, I serve on the board of the Asian American Journalists Association here in Seattle. Um, and, you know, even that recently, you know, I've been thinking about like how much of myself uh, do I want to put into that? Because uh, it, it does get exhausting, honestly, to, to be having these same conversations and to, and to, to be pushing for, for change when uh, like eventually I might just burn out and leave the field altogether. I might, uh, or at least like go to a different newsroom, get a different job, you know, like, um, and so many countless people have done that. Um, even at the newsrooms I've worked in who have pushed for change have faced wall after wall after wall until they decided they couldn't anymore, uh, and left. Um, and the people who are often expected to do this are journalists of color to do all this extra work. Um, and a lot of them want to, because, uh, they care about the place they work. It's not out of, out of like a hatred for the place you work because you don't want to be embarrassed to work at a place that like has clearly never talked to a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, yeah, I, I think, I think uh, it is a personal choice. Everyone has to make like how much of, of your unpaid hours and, and your free time you want to commit to, to improving your institution in these areas. Um, but I would advocate also for, for uh, you know, being being aware of the toll it's taking on you, so you don't burn out. Okay. Uh, the last question I'm going to pose, or second to last one actually, uh, is from Lesigo Ace Maleko. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, has anybody? Can you think of anybody who's? And we talked about this earlier on too. But can you actually think of somebody who's truly actually been canceled? I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, uh, it, I'm going to define it. If we're going to have to keep using it in this mm-hmm. very dumb timeline we live in. If we're going to have to keep talking about cancel culture, we're going to talk about it, it having a material effect on people. Um, and those people, it's hard to argue they didn't deserve that. Like Louis C.K. was sexually harassing people. Uh, now he doesn't get as many opportunities to, to perform in front of people. That's fine. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I don't think anyone, like especially like people who have gone through similar things, want to see him in front of them all the time. Um, Harvey Weinstein, like th- these kinds of people who did egregious things um, have been removed from their positions of power. The editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, who, like, you know, people spent an entire day, people in the company, sharing experiences of, of racism because of this person. Um, that person is no longer employed there. Um, people who actually lose lose material things because of their, their actions, uh, those are people that have, you could say, have been canceled. I would say they've been held accountable for the things they've done. But J.K. Rowling has not been canceled. She's just been told to stop being anti-trans, and she does not like that. For sure. All right. So we normally end the show with a thing called the wind down, but I'm actually going to spring something new on Doug. Uh, we're going to try something, a new segment called here. Hold this L. Hold this L. Hold this L. Mo, hold this L. who in the Seattle area needs to take several seats? Who? Okay. So we, so we, we both agree that cancellation isn't actually a thing. So who needs to just take their L and have a seat for a little bit? Damn, this is tough. Um, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me, like even after this whole conversation we've had to, to, uh, want to name names and things like that, because, you know, it is, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, this is a a very small media ecosystem. Um, I think, I think, uh, there are people on radio stations here who, uh, are pushing all sorts of harmful agendas and not really engaging critically with, uh, the, the things that are happening in the city right now. Um, I would say someone like Dory Monson. The, the things that person says need to be uh, examined. Um, the partnerships he has with people like the Seahawks, the organizations like the Seahawks, those things need to be examined. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying this person needs to be canceled, but we need to actually reckon with the kinds of ideas we are elevating in this city. No, for sure. If you, if the Seahawks organization is saying that they believe Black Lives Matter and Dory Monson is signaling everything to every in the world, he believes Black Lives don't matter and that he's a, unapologetic supporter of police no matter what they do however they conduct themselves then if the seahawks or his sponsors decide to separate from him that's not cancellation again that's accountability because his vision for the world and his advocacy does not line up with the advocacy and vision of his sponsors and of the seahawks organization at least that i see yeah i mean i mean the the types of ideas that someone like that shares uh are harmful to like the seahawks employees of the players, a majority of whom are black, you know, like just because they play for a football team does not shield them from 
from abuse. I mean, there was, I think it was a year or two ago where uh, uh, like a Milwaukee Bucks player, a basketball player was like stopped and had to record his interactions with police and they didn't know who he was. So that was a green light to, to mistreat him. Mm -hmm. Um, But you shouldn't have to have a platform to not be mistreated by, uh, by agents of the state. Like that's not, (laughs) that should not be a requirement. um, I think. Facts. Yeah. So Facts. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of it's it's weird that a lot of companies, you know, have to grapple with this. And there's been all sorts of terrible Black Lives Matter statements from uh, <laughs> from all sorts of brands, right? But if but like behind these brands are companies that employ people, and you have to, de- depending on the kinds of people you want to hire, like show your employees that their lives actually matter to you. Mo, I want to thank you for coming on the show and being uh, super thoughtful about all of this. If people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Hey, follow me on Twitter. Um, that's usually where I spend most of my time. I'm trying to get better at that, but it's uh, less is Mo, M-O-H. Um, yeah, or just follow Nerd Farmer. Uh, I like to, I like to, in- or follow Nate. I like to interact with him as well. <laughs> Mo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your hands. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. And sorry if it's bad on my end. Like, I didn't plan to be in my in-laws' basement. Life is just dumb right now. Yeah, no worries. I get it. (laughs) Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.